This morning we're going to be in uh, Luke 10 and 1 Thessalonians 4. We're taking a little break from, uh, we've been going through Genesis for quite some time now. And I had it all planned out in a sense, you know, it'll be done probably mid to late October. My wife's like, well, what if you, it takes longer one week and what if you do a topical? I'm like, I'm not going to do any more topical until we're done with this. I'll get through it. I've been taking like breaks. And I should have listened to her because she must she knew better than me. <laughs> last week we didn't finish the chapter, and this week we've got topical. So, um, uh, I was just uh, this is something that's really kind of been floating around my heart and mind recently. Uh, you know, the past couple of years is something that I feel like the Lord has kind of been uh, taking me through. And I had a feeling one day it would come out in a message, and I've tried to share bits and pieces with friends along the way. Uh, but just in this past week of praying about uh, you know the message and what to do and if we're continuing it just felt like this was it and uh we'll get to it but i'm going to start out with a devotion from a couple weeks ago from my utmost for his highest it says uh i think it fits in along as you'll see the songs really fit in with the message this morning but it says ask the lord to put awareness of himself in you and your self-awareness will disappear then he will be your all in all beware of allowing your self-awareness to continue because slowly but surely it will awaken. Self-pity and self-pity is satanic, he says. Don't just allow yourself to say, well, they have just misunderstood me and this is something over which they should be apologizing to me. I'm sure I must have this cleared up with them already. Learn to leave others alone regarding this. Simply ask the Lord to give you Christ awareness and he will steady you until your completeness in him is absolute. A child of God is not aware of the will of God because he is the will of God. I think this is like the hardest part to wrestle with here. He says, when we have deviated even slightly from the will of God, we begin to ask, Lord, what is your will? A child of God never prays to be made aware of the, uh, sorry, a child of God never prays to be made aware of the fact that God answers prayer because he's so restfully certain that God always answers prayer. Wherever Jesus comes, he establishes rest. That's hard because I find myself praying sometimes, God, what's your will in this? What's, what do you want me to do? And uh, he's saying here that, man, if we're just resting in the Lord and spending time with him, our concern for what is that will of God begins to fade away because we naturally begin to be a part of that will of God and it becomes part of the day-to-day. But the title of today's message, and I think this ties in a little bit, I hope, is A Quiet Life. A Quiet Life. And like I said, we're going to look at two areas of Scripture, uh, Luke 10, 38 through 42. And I'll remind you when we get there, but First Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Before we get started, I've got a little bit of an introduction here. And the first thing I'm going to ask is, what is your ideal life? What is your ideal life? I'm not asking you what is... Oh, I guess I'll ask it like the TV preacher. What's your best life now? You know, what, what do we think is our ideal life? And when you think of that perfect life, uh, you know, maybe it's that 1950s picture of a home, you know, white picket fence, uh, two and a half kids and a dog. Is that the ideal life? You know, what do you think of? As I was saying in a hotel this week, uh, there was TV and uh, we don't have cable at home. Not necessarily because I think it's bad or anything. It's just because I'm cheap and I'm not paying that much for cable. Uh, but there was a show on about these people who vacation on yachts and it's all about the people who serve on the yachts. And I watched about two minutes of it and I said, this is garbage and I turned it off. But basically, there's people who think that that is the life. To be on a yacht, to be sailing around the world. And 
you know, I, I can't blame them. You know, I'm sure even serving on the yacht is probably fun. You're in crazy destinations. They give you big cash tips with a staff of people to meet your every need. Wouldn't that be nice? Isn't that what marriage is all about, guys? <laughs> no, uh, she's in the room, so I won't get hurt right now. You know, having a gourmet meal prepared for you three times a day? I have that. <laughs> I have a gourmet meal prepared for me. My wife loves to make food for me, as you can tell. But it, maybe it's winning the lottery and never working again. That'd be great to always have a bank account you can draw from, always have a check coming in that you didn't have to do anything for, but just guess some random number. Or maybe it's being famous. Maybe it's being a big time musician. You know, as a kid, I wanted to be a rock star, but I can't, <laughs> I can't do anything. But uh, maybe it was an athlete or a movie star. Maybe you want that number one movie or you want your name in that star in Hollywood for some reason. You want to walk the red carpet, have millions of people around the world sing your song. Isn't that crazy to think about that in this day and age, you can write a song or maybe your producer writes a song and you sing it and then millions of people know it by heart and they sing it in their car, they cry it in the shower, they, you know, whatever it is and that's your song. Maybe you want to be a big time YouTuber with 10 million subscribers. I've heard it recently that the number one job American kids want today is to be a YouTuber. But the number one job Chinese kids want today is to be an astronaut. I have to wonder which nation has a strong future. <laughs> you know, would you want to go to the moon? Mars, you know, that you ask a little boy or a little girl what they want to be in the grove. They want to be 10 things. Me wants to be an EMT, a doctor, a firefighter, a missionary. You know, I want to be an astronaut or a fighter pilot. Maybe you want to be a model or a fitness star, an athlete or an elite soldier. Maybe it's more work oriented to get a lot of education, to get a great job make a lot of money and gain recognition that you'd be famous for inventing something or making something. You think about guys like Elon Musk, invents PayPal, he doesn't stop there, he reinvents cars, electric cars, does SpaceX, the Born Company, this guy who's working 20 jobs a day and uh, just keeps having success in it. So why do you and I not have these things? Did we pursue them and it maybe not just work out? You really tried to be hard to be an astronaut, but when it came to chemistry and physics, you just didn't get it. You know, again, I wanted to be an F-16 pilot when I was a kid until I learned you need 20-20 vision. And I had glasses. I said, okay, well, I'm not going to the Air Force if I can't be a pilot. So, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm sure I would have found better excuses for that when I was older. But maybe you did try and you got pretty far, but you're still not that household name. You know, we know some great singers who are really talented and they've come to know the Lord in their older age. But they were the backup singers for Meatloaf. And that was their claim to fame, and now they, they count it in a sense as rubbish. They use it for ministry, but man, they care more about singing for the Lord. But maybe you and I felt that we had to keep settling for less for whatever reason that was in life. Oh, my parents can't afford school, or oh, I'll never amount to that, or it'll never happen. And maybe some of that is true, and maybe it's not. But even more so, if you and I count ourselves to be Christians, to be people who know the living God, what should the aim of our lives be? You know, again, I'm not saying that any things are intrinsically bad. You know, yeah, there's a lot of bad stuff on TV, but if you don't watch it, you know, it's, I'm not saying it's wrong to have TV. And not that it's bad to be a YouTuber or an astronaut or any of those things. But do you have dreams for your life in Jesus? To travel the world, spread the gospel maybe? Maybe it's to be a worship leader who, yeah, that must be an awesome thing to be able to 
spend time with the Lord, write a song for Him, and it becomes an anthem of the church. You know, these people we listened to this morning, they're not here with us, but we're able to spend time with the Lord through the gifts and talents that He's given them. But, you know, insert your dream here, so to speak. And I'm not saying that this, cer- this certainly isn't a message of how to get your dreams in Christ fulfilled. Three easy steps, 1995, just subscribe to my program, and I'll certainly tell you how, because I have no clue how. Although I, I might have a clue. Because it, it may, in fact, turn out that way for you and I. And not to boast in myself, but truly to boast in the Lord. I've seen more of my dreams and desires of my heart from Him be fulfilled and realized in the past few years than I ever thought possible. Things that I thought even were totally impossible, totally improbable, were never going to happen for me, have not only happened, but have happened in ways I never could have expected. And in ways that I never even tried. And truly that it was the Lord leading myself or my wife and I into different things. But sincerely, these things didn't happen by me directly seeking them. And these desires that God has given you and I in life, it's, it's, it's good to want to be successful in a way. To want to put your hand to something like the Lord did in the beginning and step back and say, you know what? This is good. I made something and this was good. There's nothing wrong with that. As long as it's not our main goal. But the more in life before the Lord and after coming to know the Lord, when I tried to make things happen in my own strength, the further I got away from them. The more I tried to make a relationship happen, the further it went from happening. The more I tried to be successful, the more I tried to assert myself in business or in life, the more I was pushed out of it, the more the opportunities were crushed before me by my own doing. But Psalm 37, 4 through 5, we probably know this, says, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. I'm not one of these guys to say this in a message. You know, I've heard other guys say it, it works for them, and I feel like I, I don't, I don't, you know, if I have a, I don't have a key ring, but one of the keys, one of the keys to life seems in really living it is simply finding your delight in the Lord and finding it first and above all and really just in Him. And that's the key to life. You want to have that abundant life that Jesus talks about that's overflowing with life is just find your delight in Him. It's to stop worrying about being delighted in other things. That's hard to do. You know, like I said, we were looking for a house all summer. There were days I was like pulling my hair out, you know? Just like, Lord, like what is going on? Like deals pulled off from under us, not being able to find something and this whole Goldilocks situation. And maybe I made it harder than it needed to be. Maybe I should have just trusted a lot earlier. In fact, even when we got under contract, I was thankful. But I was like, Lord, like, I wish I trusted you more during these past few months than I did. Because I think perhaps if we're honest, we seek out all those things that we listed before. We seek these things in life. It's just, I think in some sense, natural. I think in some way we seek to delight ourselves. And instead of delight, we find death. One thing you know, you find all these famous people. You know, I saw an ad for Time Life for Robin Williams, this famous actor and comedian, had everything that a lot of people would want, and he ended up killing himself. There was no delight, and all the delight he gave to others, he didn't have delight for himself. First Timothy six six through ten says, "Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we have brought nothing into this world, and is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing." 
and the, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. That, again, not saying that money is evil, but the love of money, the desire for money above all things, leads people to do all sorts of evil things. I mean, just read the news and see all the things that people are doing, and I guarantee a lot of it has to do with money and wealth and power. But when we look at the scripture, we see guys like Abraham, David, we're reading about Joseph and learning about him. Second most powerful man in Egypt. He was a rich dude. Solomon, Job, and others. These were some of the richest guys to ever live. Again, I don't think the Bible says that being rich is wrong or having things is wrong or being successful in life and wise in life like Solomon is wrong. But when it becomes our desire, when it becomes the, the chief thing that we look for, it can lead to our downfall or really it can lead to uh, all sorts of destruction. I think society is geared towards making everyone think that they can be rich and that it's the pinnacle. It's how I work in advertising. That's how it works. You make people think that they can have what they want to have and they can have it if they just buy your product, right? They'll get more sales if they just use our product. But the reality is there's really only ever going to be a few people who are rich, who are rich. Jesus said the poor you're always going to have with you. No matter what the campaign slogans of 2020 are, there's always going to be poor people with us. And we should take care of them, but we're never going to eliminate it. Quickly touch on Jeff Bezos and Amazon. It, I've mentioned this before, but the amount of money he has compared to the amount of money that you and I might have. If we were to go buy an expensive cup of coffee, maybe not like one we find in Florence Coffee, but maybe we go to like a, a chain and spend eight, nine, ten dollars on an expensive cup of coffee, right? I don't know if people do that every day. They must really like coffee, but the amount of money for us to do that is the same as him buying a private jet. That the amount of money, billions of dollars, is so far beyond our realm of life and reality and that day-to-day spending, it's not even close. It's not even comparable. So the reality is, there's only a few people who are going to be as rich as that. But I believe the key to being rich is finding that real riches... And knowing what real riches are and knowing how to be truly rich in life. And the way we do that is by knowing the richest person of all. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I was praying, Lord, I'm like, Lord, you own every house out here. I don't care what they own. You know, that's, you really have power over this. You can give us whatever, we, whatever you want to give us. And that helped me not to worry. Five minutes later, I might be praying again because I started worrying again, but... I think you get the point there. Because being uh, spiritually rich, so to speak, is the only wealth you and I need. And that's easy to say when the bills are paid. Maybe there's only 30 bucks in the bank, but the bills are paid for the month. I'm like, okay, we don't have to worry. It's a little harder to say when we don't have a job or we don't have money in the bank. But truly, it's the only wealth we need. Because if we have him, like the Bible says, all our needs will be met. Will they not? I mean, you know, it's... Talking with a coworker, he had asked me a couple of questions when he was giving me a ride home from the work party on Friday. And I was like, if you really believe what you say you believe, will this not come to be? Will this not be the way God is? If you really believe that God is who he says he is, will he not meet our needs? I think a lot of times, myself included in the church, we, we say these things, we, we read these things, we know them by heart, we may even have them written on the wall, or some of us might even have them tattooed on our bodies, but do we know 
And do we truly believe that it's going to happen and that it's real? And I don't want to get into a tangent here. So let's get into uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 38. And uh, Lord, again, we just want to ask you, God, just to speak to us through your word, by your spirit, that Lord, we wouldn't miss you. We wouldn't desire anything else this morning other than to hear from you. And perhaps that the message ends in a timely manner, but God, that you would be uh, glorified in our lives this morning. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. So Luke 10, 38 through 42, and I'm sure you guys are all familiar with this, but it says, Now it happened as they went that he, Jesus, entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. I like how Luke says this, a certain woman, a certain village. But she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. And guaranteed, there's a lot more in this little section of Scripture that we could learn or come to hear that uh, I would even be able to tell in a lifetime, let alone, um, you know, uh, someone else who could tell you in a day. But Jesus goes into the town of Bethany, and I hope we can pull away one thing from this story. That when Jesus goes to the town of Bethany, he goes to where his close friends are, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That he's going to this town, and I'm sure just like he was going to see, he made that detour to Samaria to see the woman at the well, that I'm sure he's going to Bethany because he wants to spend time with them. It's not like he's going and he's walking. He's like, oh, well, there's nowhere else to stay. I'm going to stay at their house today. So I'm sure he wanted to hang out with them and spend time with them. He, he, he wept when Lazarus dies. When any time when you and I have friends over, I remember having, we'd have friends over a lot in New York, have game days, play board games, have the kids come over and play. Um, we have someone special over. Uh, we're going to want to make everything perfect sometimes, especially around the holidays. Everything's got to be, well, I don't know about you guys, but certain people in my family try and make everything perfect, and it is. I go, wow, I don't know how you did all this or made all this. Um, uh, but I think sometimes even in the church, too, we try and make everything perfect. You know, one reason why we got the couches is that when people come, I hope that they're comfortable, not that you don't have to sit on these chairs and are uncomfortable, especially if I go long, right, April? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But... And this can't even be related to the gift of hospitality. That's a good thing. When you want people to come over, you kind of clean up. You know, especially when you're selling your house, you clean it up real good. You know, probably better than you ever, ever would um, uh, to make sure people like it and want to buy it. And there's nothing wrong with that. So I, I hope we don't take that away as what we're hearing here or what I'm trying to say here. There's nothing wrong with that. And want to try to make things nice or special for people we care about. But what we see here is Mary and Martha do two completely different things when Jesus comes over that day. And we've all known this. We've probably heard many messages on it. But Mary sat at his feet. And the word sat is to sit. It means to sit down beside, to sit beside, to place near. Kind of like when my wife will sit over there and she'll have Timmy in the little seat right before her. It's kind of right at her feet so he can see her, he can hear her, and he can relax and coo even if he's not sleeping. But it says that she heard his word. And that's kind of obvious. You're sitting that close to someone. You can probably hear what they're saying and also smell their breath and all those things. But this word here means to be endowed with the faculty of hearing, to be not deaf. I think that's interesting to go that other way, that not deaf. 
to attend, to consider what has or has been said, to understand. You know, I, I always like to sit in the back of the class in high school, so I probably miss a lot of what the teacher said. But the kids who did really well tended to sit in front, that they wouldn't miss it. There wouldn't be any distraction there. To find out, to learn, to give ear to a teacher, to comprehend, to understand. To be hear what is announced in one's presence. To be able to be within that hearing. I see my wife kind of looking at me. I'm sure she can hear a little bit, but it's different than being right here. And the word... Uh, is the word logos, which is used for the word of God, the plain word of God. But it could be speech uttered by a living voice. It embodies a, an idea. Uh, it's a, the sayings of God. It's a decree, a mandate or order. Uh, Old Testament prophecy given by the prophets, this word logos is used, which I think is interesting. Uh, it's declared, thought, declaration, etc. Discourse. And in John, it says that it denotes the essential word of God. Now, there's logos and rhema. There's logos, the plain word of God. Do not kill, do not murder. This is what the Bible says. Then there's rhema. How does this speak into your life and my life? What is God using this scripture to speak to us uh, today about? But when the Son of God came over her house, all Mary wanted to do was spend time with him. If Jesus was sitting down, she was sitting down. I bet if Jesus was in the kitchen, she would have been in the kitchen. I believe she just wanted to hear what he would say. I mean, if we think about this, right? You've got the living God embodied in a person walking into the room. This man who has spoken the things of God, who has given messages. You're probably going to want to hear what he has to say. You probably want to come say, hey, Jesus, you know, when I come home, my kids just want to come tell me things and be close to me. And I think that's kind of what Mary was doing. Jesus, oh, okay, what are you going to say today? Okay, the, the meek shall inherit the earth. What's today? What's, what's the word today? Like when he was in the temple as a boy and speaking these things of God and they marveled. She was looking forward to the things that he hadn't said yet. We have the whole scripture. She didn't have it all yet. She, she couldn't wait for the next verse to come out of his mouth, so to speak. Digress a little bit, but the other night I was on the phone uh, with my kids from the hotel and they were asking about my day and I was telling them I was coming home tomorrow. Um, you know, I spoke to eat, three of them. I spoke to Timmy too, but he didn't really talk back. I was <laughs> kind of cooing. Um, but I told them the same things and some different things. I told them, uh, you know, obviously all that I love them. I told them that I was coming home tomorrow and I told them different things about my day based on what they could understand and what they could hear and where they are in life and, you know, different things that they had said to me. And as, I forget who the last one was, but they were giving the phone back to Ash. I feel like the Lord just kind of dropped this in my heart that, you know, this is like the Gospels. You know, we look at the four Gospels and wonder why are they different? You know, yeah, you've got all these heady reasons and uh, academic reasons, which are good and they're great to know. But I think the Lord might have been saying, you know, just like I, you speak to your kids, and you tell them some same things, some different things. So I've done through the Gospels that, man, I, I've dropped some truth in there. I've dropped uh, things that I love and things that, I, that Luke would be better at saying or understanding or Matthew would be better at saying and communicating through his life. And take that for what it's worth, but it, it ministered to me in some sense that, man, that, that, yeah, there's all these academic things in the Logos, but, man, there's all this rhema behind it. That's, man, just the love of God, the heart of God throughout it all. That he doesn't just do it in just a cold, static way uh, for you know, a mathematical reason to have four Gospels. 
But if we know the Gospels, we know John 13, 23. It says, Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. And that's John. We know that's John, but he always said that. Disciple whom Jesus loved. And I picture this guy reclining back, leaning on Jesus' shoulder on his chest, um, uh, just like my kids might on me. Or like your kids are on you right now, which I think is awesome. Uh, that this disciple John, who Jesus loved, he referred to himself that way. Like, do you and I refer to ourselves as the one whom Jesus loves? I'll be honest, I struggle with that. You know, I know my earthly dad loves me, but there's still like a disconnect there. And even then, I look around at other people and I go, man, these, those, God loves that Christian. God loves that person. Look at, But me, I'm like, yeah, I know he loves me, but I think it's kind of like, eh, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, maybe, maybe I'm not the favorite kid. Um, but no, G, John knew that Jesus loved him because John knew what the scripture said. John knew who Jesus was personally. And it wasn't that John loved Jesus so much and that's why he leaned on him. He leaned on him because he knew his father loved him. And I hope that's why my kids lean on me. I hope it, in a sense it's more that, more that they know that I love them versus them trying to show me that they love me. Because I don't need them to show me. I like it, but I don't need them to show me. I want them to know that I love them. But we see that Martha, her sister, was distracted with much serving. With much serving. This word distracted means to draw around, to draw away, or to distract. To be driven about mentally. I don't know if you've ever felt driven about mentally. When I go back to the office, I feel driven about mentally. Like Tuesday was all meetings, Wednesday was all catching up. Uh, oh no, when, yeah, it was Wednesday was all meetings, Thursday was all catching up, Friday I had to do a presentation. It was, I couldn't even like, I'd call my wife at night and be like, hey babe, how are you? But there's no like texting or anything during the day, it was too busy. But this was Martha. She was over-occupied. She was too busy about a thing. She was so busy preparing things and doing things that in her mind were even perhaps to her Lord. Oh, Jesus has come in my door. Mary's mentality was to sit with the Lord. Martha's natural inclination was, Jesus here, let me make him something to eat. Let's have a feast. Let me get all the plates set up. Let me clean up the kitchen. Let me clean up the other room. Let me get the vacuum out. I didn't know he was coming. If you were coming, I would have done this earlier. I'm so sorry, Lord. Let me get this ready. And while she's doing that, even if in her mind and her heart she wants to serve the Lord and she's doing it for the Lord, maybe she thinks the key was here that she wasn't hearing what he was saying. Jesus was talking and sharing, having a conversation, maybe even just talking about the weather. I don't know. But Martha was out of range of hearing. Maybe she could kind of hear like the distance from here to there. Maybe, they, you know, I don't imagine their house being very big, especially back then, but Whatever she's doing, she's not able to hear what the Lord is saying. She wasn't getting to know him better. She wasn't getting to hear what he was talking about, the depth of perhaps what he was sharing about the scripture, or just hearing what his laugh was like, seeing what made him smile, or anything that you might know about your friends from spending time with them. You know, there's things I know about my friends that's just different quirks they have. You know, uh, these guys will rip on me because sometimes I was starting out a message by saying, all right, so, all right, so. And so that was the joke they always start out with, all right, so. But for Martha, I believe on some level that perhaps she was serving herself in doing this, and not necessarily consciously, but she felt it was the right thing to do. Maybe on some level she felt she had to do it. It's some tradition or some obligation that when someone comes over your house, your parents taught her, Always make sure something's ready. Maybe it's just her personal, you know, gifts and, you know, her own hospitality, but taken away in a fleshly uh, sense out of worry. 
You know, it's the right thing to do when someone comes over to do these things. So it's the right thing to do to offer them something to drink. Give them a place to sit. Make sure they're comfortable. I think about uh, last night coming home, and Mia wanted to help me with my heavy bag. And she, she came over and hugged me, and all the other kids came and hugged me. And then Mia started picking up my heavy bag, like, Dad, I'll help you. She's like, oh, it's heavy, you know. And, like, it's got clean laundry, dirty laundry. I got stuff for my computer, stuff that has to go to 10 different places. And she just wants to help. So, uh, you know, I'm like, Mia, just put it down, and I'll give you this little bag of dirty laundry. You know, don't take it out. It's dirty. I don't want you to not worry about that. But bring it to the washroom. Then she came back and tried to take the bag. And I thought about this and about what I've been considering all week. I'm like, just come here and give me a hug. And I had to, like, ask her twice to do it. She goes, oh, dad, you know, rolls her eyes, but she comes over and gives me a great big hug. Because her, she loves to serve. She loves to help. That She is such a big help. And that's just naturally kind of who she was. And so I had to kind of prod her to get her to come back for another hug um, when she didn't really need to do anything for me. Although I, it really, it makes me feel special that I know that's like one of her ways of showing that she loves me. But don't you think that Jesus coming over Mary, Martha, and Lazarus' house, just want to spend time with Martha too? That's why he went there after all, I think. You know, this guy who, Jesus, uh, who Satan tried to tempt by saying, you could turn rocks into bread, he could have, if he wanted to. So I don't think he's primarily there for Martha's cooking, although I'm sure it's good. I'm not even going to get into the dynamic between the sisters here, what Martha expects Jesus to do, but that Jesus said that Mary chose the good. Mary chose the best thing to do when he came over, and that was to spend time with him. Above all else, even the customary, even the needful things like getting dinner ready for their guests. That spending time with the Lord, Jesus said, was the good, is the best, is the most needful thing. And he, above all else, was not going to take that away from her. Man doesn't live by bread alone, right? But by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That the thing that he was in their house and their lives for to do was to spend time with them and to talk with them and to tell them about God. Because, you know, a real friend doesn't hang out with you to get something from you. It's something we try and teach our kids. Like, yeah, they're excited to go over to a friend's house and like, oh, they have this toy and this thing we're going to do. I'm like, yeah, it's great. Have fun. But make sure that you spend time with them and that's not the first thing you ask them when you get on the door. You know, teach a little uh, politeness, hopefully, um, which I'm still trying to learn. But a real friend just wants to hang out wants to do what you want to do, to listen to you, to talk to you, or even just, like, sometimes as a guy, I just like to sit and do nothing with another guy friend. You know, I don't need to say anything. We don't need to do anything. Let's just sit here and watch the game or watch a movie or, you know, whatever it is. Just be there. Because a real friend, a best friend, doesn't use you for your things, your money, or your power. And again, I think the wealthy have a hard time finding true friends. I've heard stories of wealthy guys who cared about all the people in their lives, they ended up giving up all their money and the people just used them for it. And when the money ran out, their friendship ran out. But you and I have a real friend and that real friend is very wealthy, is very powerful. And I'll bet that they will let you use those things. I've had uh, Christian friends who own a house or own a condo and let me rent it for cheap. They don't, you know, just pay me whatever the mortgage is. Just cover the bills. They didn't have to, but they did because they're my friend and I didn't ask them. They offered it. And they want to bless you with gifts that you might not be able to have on your own. I see about Mia, who I got a new bike for her birthday in the spring. And, uh, 
she's been teaching Jacob how to write it. I'm like, ah, that's my job. I want to teach him. And she was teaching him this week. But apparently, you know, like how sweet it is that he doesn't have a big boy bike yet. And he's like even too small for her bike. And she's teaching him. He's doing well. I think that's really sweet. But with the Lord, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And he knows what we need before we do. I mean, we say that, but do we really believe that? He really owns everything. That if it's his will, and he wants to give you that building across the street for free, he could do it. He might not, but it's not without the realm of possibility. So why don't we let him be the desire of our hearts? He knows about every hair on our head. He knows about every care we have. I mean, even selfishly, even if we approach it selfishly, think, well, God's got all this stuff. God knows me. God cares about me. Even if I don't necessarily care about him, he cares about me. Wouldn't we selfishly want to even come close to him for that? But when you and I do realize that we do, that he is going to do all these things for us, why do we not come to him? Why do we not sit at his feet? Again, if we do, we might still be living paycheck to paycheck, but our needs are met. We'll be rich. We'll have everything we want in life because we're finding everything we want in life at his feet. And more than that, more than having our needs met, having the things we want, which it's really vanity. We get to know the living God. We get to know the one who made us, who made the universe. I mean, that's awesome. Isn't that the most important thing, the most invaluable thing in life to really and truly know God? And not just know Him like we might know a celebrity or even our boss or even our spouse, but really know Him. I wonder why do we not want to know Him? Why do we even get so busy about some idea of ours or some tradition or some obligation imposed on us to serve Him that really, at the end of the day, distracts us. And I was talking with a pastor friend in New York who's on you know, the board here. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is going a little bit. And we were talking about different ministries and things. And he said it was kind of a relief. Like I was, he was started a Wednesday night service at their church. Uh, well, he started teaching at their Wednesday night service. He's uh, like an associate pastor there. And uh, I was like, oh, can I listen to him? I'd like to hear it. I haven't been able to hear him teach in a while. He's like, yeah, well, it didn't really work out. And so I went to try and download it. And there was all this noise on the on the audio and everything. You know, it just someone just had something plugged in or unplugged that wasn't supposed to be plugged in. And we were talking. And he's like, you know, it's kind of nice to you know be here in a place for once where you know it's almost like people don't care. You know, you know, so you go to some places it's like you almost care too much, and there's almost too much attention placed in these things. And he's kind of like a relief to kind of be where they almost don't care. And I kind of joked, I was like, well, yeah, you know, there's a balance. He's like, yeah, there's definitely a balance to be found in there somewhere where the sound recording works, but it's not, you know, taken above all other things. And I'm hoping they get it fixed because I want to listen to them. I was like, take that audio recorder and put it in your pocket. But why are we just too busy to sit with him? It's because we're too busy trying to get the sound to work. We're too busy trying to get things cleaned up. You know, I, I, I guess I'm a type A. I don't know all the personality types. And there's all these new things that always come out. People are like, are you a number 42 or whatever the latest thing is? But I always tend to have a plan. Okay, well, I, you know, for even on my days off, like on a Saturday, I'm like, okay, well, get up. I'll have time with the kids. And then I'll go do this chore and I'll do that. And then we'll take a nap. And then we'll, you know, it's like I've always got like, 
I'm sick. There's something wrong. <laughs> something wrong with me. But I see that in my daughter Mia too. She's like, I don't even have to teach her these things. She just naturally comes out and says these plans that she has. Well, we'll play this later. Then we'll do that. And then we'll do this. I'm like, well, let's just see what we're doing later. We'll definitely hang out. But let's just relax a little bit. But what could we uh, possibly have to do in life that's more important than time with Jesus? Because plans only work out for so long before they become some chain in our life, before, before they start binding us. You know, because when my wife and I were first dating, we would stay up late on the phone. It would be so late, we'd have to go to work, but we'd stay on the phone or we'd be talking in the car or whatever it was. Or even with the kids sometimes, like, you know what, let's just let them stay up really late tonight. And even times with the Lord, in my, early on in my walk, I'd stay up real late, spending time with Him, even if I had to get up the next day. Because in those situations, it was more important to spend time with these people and doing those things than getting that extra hour or two of sleep. And again, once in a while, that's fine. You start doing it all the time. It's like, well, maybe you should get up early and spend time with the Lord in the morning instead of 3 o'clock in the morning, you know? Like and being late for work or anything like that. But the point I'm trying to get at is that when we're in love, does anything else really matter than spending time with that person? Certainly, sometimes work doesn't matter. When you really love them, yeah, work matters because you want to be able to provide for them and everything. So there's, again, there's that balance. But when we really love someone, other obligations tend to fall by the wayside. You know, I remember if you're in high school and your friends would start dating someone, you wouldn't see them for weeks. Like, where have you been? You're like, oh, hanging out with so-and-so. Again, I'm not saying to be irresponsible. I think, in fact, we should be the most responsible people. But the question is, what is the best thing? Is it more responsible to sit and receive the things of God or to prepare a meal for the people of God, which Martha was doing? But I don't know anyone was necessarily asking her to do that. I mean, if the disciples were there, I can guarantee they were probably grumbling that they were hungry. And, you know, Martha, what do you got? They're picking through her cabinets or whatever. Uh, but I don't know. It just seems likely that perhaps Jesus just came over and Martha immediately thought, let me get the things ready. And that's not at all what he was there to do. And let's uh, flip over to 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. Let's try and get through this section quickly here. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12, it says, But concerning brotherly love, you, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly to those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. You see here that Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, he's saying, brotherly love, that you guys are are taught by God. You love each other so well and so much that it's obvious that God is, taught, God is teaching you. I mean, Jesus said, you know, how do they know you're my disciples? By your love for one another. And it sounds like very much like the Thessalonians were sitting at Jesus' feet, in a sense. I mean, obviously Jesus had ascended at this point, but spiritually they're sitting at his feet, just like Mary was. And yet, even though they're doing that, even though they're loving each other so much that it's evident that they're taught by God, Paul and the other guys with him urge them to increase more and more that no matter how loving they were and how loving they were to each other they can never have enough of that they can never love each other enough that you and i will never reach a point where we've loved each other enough there's always something more we can do to love that person or love the people around us i mean sometimes we feel like it sometimes 
you know, especially in a worldly sense, you start to measure things by, you know, dollars and cents and time. Uh, you know, even sometimes in a churchly sense, uh, you know, that we feel like we've reached that point. Yeah, you know, I've really kind of done enough to love this person. And I'm feeling pretty good about myself because I've been so loving to them this week. You know, I haven't been rude to my wife at all. You know, like, well, yeah, you haven't been rude, but have you been anything good, any blessing? But Paul says to keep going. That this urging is to keep going, to keep seeking to love God and love others more. Because at some point it's going to end, and that might be a natural end. We need to get to a supernatural place in our love for others. That sometimes it's going to take forcing ourselves to sit down that others might be lifted up. It's going to force us to find more and more ways, more and more choices each day. You know, if, if we really think about it, everything we do is a choice. And I don't think you should think about it too long because I'm going to go a little crazy as I think about, well, this choice and that choice. Am I making a choice? But sincerely, everyone is an opportunity to try and fit love in for that other person instead of looking out for ourselves. And Paul says, you got that brotherly love. Continue that. Do more of that. But on top of that, on top of that foundation, alongside it, maybe even aspire to lead a quiet life. This verse has stuck with me uh, at least for several years. And I don't claim to understand it all or have applied it all, but it's something that I feel like really is just kind of latched on uh, uh, to my heart in some way. Because what does the world aspire to? Usually, I would say it's probably not a quiet life. They want a loud life. They want a life that makes noise, doing big, mighty, great things. Things that get attention for themselves. Even if they wrap it in philanthropy. Oh, I just gave a billion dollars to this charity, but look at me. I've got this big check, and aren't I a great person? And yeah, we all love you, movie star. You know everything about life, so that's why we're going to listen to you when you tell us who to vote for. And the world, and even ourselves, don't always want the quiet things. We want the loud things, you know. We want to take the muffler off the car. We want to get, you know, bigger tires. We want, you know what I mean? We want the louder things. But what does the church aspire to? What is the church, even if not in word, I don't think the church preaches to be louder. I don't think the church necessarily preaches these things. Maybe the church, I don't know, maybe I just haven't been around in churches. But in practice, what does at least Western Christianity teach us to aspire to? Is it not big ministry? Is it not being famous in Christian circles? Having many followers? I hate to say it, but numbers in some ways have become the most important factor, even though sometimes the words that come out of the mouths or even are in the doctrinal statement say we're not about numbers. It becomes about numbers. I think there's a reason why God told David not to number the people. But even if we don't admit it, even just naturally, it's just kind of one of the ways we measure success in life. What's the number in your bank account? What's the number of kids you have? What's the number of horses you have? You know, it's like somehow that is a measure of success. And somehow that's also one of the first things we ask is how big is your church? How big is your ministry? Not what's the Lord doing in your guys life lately? What is the Lord leading your church to do lately? And maybe we do ask that. But I think somehow even sometimes the answer shortly turns to X number of people, you know, a pastor friend of mine in the Baltimore area, uh, no one's listening to this, so if he's not, I'm not giving him away, but <laughs> the point is that he said, you know, sometimes I go to a conference, and it's like the only people that are asked to speak are the guys who have churches with so many thousands of people. 
And I get it. You know, these guys obviously have been walking with the Lord. Obviously, God is, I hope, obviously, God is blessing their ministry, that the numbers is a sign of God's blessing on them and not some other thing. And obviously, these men know the Lord and have great things to say, and I, I love going to those things. But he said to me, it's kind of funny that, you know, they never ask someone from a small church to speak. Not that they're going to be the only speaker, but that it always seems to be this one-sided thing. And he's brought up some of these points to me. And again, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's a great thing. 8,000 people coming to your church? That's fantastic. That's 8,000 people on church on a Sunday, hopefully hearing the Word of God. But why does it become our focus so quickly? I think probably because it's an easy way to kind of measure things and meet things out. And I get it. You know, you want more people to come if they would hear the gospel, but is that what we're to aspire to? Isn't that not why people go to large cities to start churches as opposed to the backside of Africa somewhere? to a small tribe, you know? It's like, yeah, I'm sure God wants them to go there, but I have to wonder, why is our aim that way? And I like the way the old King James says, it says, study to be quiet. Like for some of us, we really do need to study like we're in school to learn how to be quiet. <laughs> you know, I got to prepare some of my kids to learn how to be quiet sometimes because they have to learn to sit for hours. Because we tend to be loudmouths. In school, all the time, I would be told to be quiet. I don't know why. <laughs> I know. I also have a voice that is just kind of loud. We tend to get in other people's faces, other people's business, even well-meaning as believers. Well, you know, brother. I say that, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's, it's not. Maybe we do need to mind our own business. I think part of this is talking about mind your own business, like to have your own business. I think some of it's like, mind your own business. <laughs> like, Stop getting in other people's face all the time and go to the quiet place and pray for them. And this message is just as much for me. Don't, you know, it's, it's convicting in ways. Because we tend to seek the flashy. We tend to seek the monumental in life, spiritually or physically. But we really need to learn to seek the quiet. Jesus went away to a place to pray. He went out early in the morning when it's quiet. You know, we need to seek the humble the genuine and the honest. And a lot of times we don't seek that. We have, like the Bible says, itching ears and we seek the loudest. We seek the most famous. And again, Charles Stanley, Billy Graham, other guys you might name that are super famous, fantastic men of the Lord, as far as I know, and I would seek them out. But sincerely, we need to seek the quiet time of the Lord. And to take this section of Scripture in light of Mary and Martha, as we're getting close to close here, Mary probably wasn't making much sound. She's probably sitting there like you, April, you know, just sitting not making a lot of sound. <laughs> maybe smiling, maybe laughing, maybe listening, maybe do that mm-hmm thing we do. And my wife will make fun of me or my kids. Actually, it's funny, like if we'll listen to a message occasionally at home and I'll be listening, I'll make a noise and then I'll hear my daughter playing Legos or something and she'll make the same noise I made. I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's totally, totally digging on me. You know, that thing when we listen, when we receive something like, hmm, you know, that's good. But Martha, she was probably running around, opening and closing cabinets, doors, banging pots and pans, flushing toilets, running the mixer, <laughs> shouting from the kitchen. And she's like, Mary, Mary. Mary's not listening. Lord, why isn't Mary in here helping me? I'm making dinner. Please tell her to come in here and help me. And the Lord's like, Martha, Mary's chosen the better thing. I'm not going to take that away from her. But could that be some of our prayers right now? Lord, why isn't my spouse helping me? Why aren't my friends 
whatever. We're upset, we're shouting, we're perturbed with someone, and maybe even we've reached the point where we're upset with the Lord over it. God, why aren't you helping me? Why are you sitting there, Lord, on the throne in heaven above all? When we don't have that provision that we think we need to get done, what we think needs to get done, Martha thought she had to do this thing. She didn't have the help to do the thing for the person she thought she needed to do the thing. And the Lord says, Martha, you don't really need to be doing that thing. Because the reality is, what do we really need to do with our lives? And if we don't have the means in our lives right now to do it, and we're seeking the Lord for it, do we really sit at his feet first and take his lunch order? Lord, what do you want for lunch today? I can't wait to find out what I'm having for lunch today. But is God even hungry? Or are we busy about trying to fix some dinner and he's just like, I just ate. We need to keep quiet to rest, is what this word means, to cease from labor, to lead a quiet life, a life that's ceasing from labor, like the priest would wear the linen to show that they weren't laboring, that it was light and airy. Instead of those who are not running back and forth, but stay at home to mind their own business, to be silent, to say nothing, to hold one's peace, that we need to aspire, and it should be our goal, our aim, the thing we want to live up to, Instead of inspiring to be that famous musician, I'm thankful for them in the Christian circles. But maybe we need to aspire to just be someone who plays guitar when no one else hears but the Lord. I remember my friend Brad all the time going in his room, learning how to play guitar and not playing it for anyone else. And then he'd be given opportunities to share those songs that he wasn't seeking, he wasn't looking after. And they were amazing. Because he did it, like David, for the Lord. Because... Sometimes, don't we do that under the false pretense of doing it, knowing that God might make us famous? All right, well, I know if I go in my room and I do this, and one day I'll be able to play in front of the whole church. And yeah, you know, like God says, it's good, to, it's good to desire these things. It's good to desire the ministry and those. But we can't give it to ourselves. We can't make it happen for ourselves. I think sometimes we pray in secret because we know he'll remind us openly. So, oh boy, I can't wait to receive my open. I'm going to go pray in secret for my cousin and I can't wait until my cousin comes and bows at my feet, you know, and seeks my forgiveness. Because I think sometimes, and hear me out on this, I think we should aspire to forget those parts of the verses in a way. They're rewarded openly. And just focus on the part that says to go in your room and quietly seek him. For myself included that we might be able to hear Him, see Him, be changed by Him. Because a quiet life can mean a lot of things. It actually be a quiet life, one that doesn't make much sound, goes about his business, lives peaceably, never leaves its small town or home life. You know, all across the country, kids are like, there's nothing to do in my town. I've got to go to another town. I'm like, I've been to a couple towns. There's nothing to do anywhere. <laughs> like, I'd, rather, you know, I'd rather be in a small town where not much goes on than a big town where too much goes on. Or you're just a stay-at-home mom, you know, like, I, again, Wheel of Fortune was on. They're like, what do you do? It's like, I'm a stay -at you're a stay-at-home mom. And you tell Pat Sajak was kind of like, he was being nice, but underhandedly, you could tell he, like, didn't respect it somehow. Sorry, Pat. But it's not only a stay-at-home mom. Is it better to be a stay-at-home mom or a never-at-home mom? Not that there's anything wrong with working or a woman in the workforce. You know, I remember my mom going to work after my parents got divorced, and I'm glad she did. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, but 
or even that both parents to work if they must. You know, it's, things are expensive. Kids are expensive. College is expensive. My kids, sorry guys, you're on your own for that. <laughs> uh, but do you really have to work two jobs? Is it perhaps that we're just too preoccupied trying to aspire to these greater riches in life? Which, I don't wanna miss this. And these things that we think are greater are really lesser. And the things we're missing out on are truly the greater things in life. I am so thankful that I'm able to work from home most of the time. I go away for a week or so every couple of months. But most of the time I'm home with my kids. Yeah, I come out of my office sometimes. I'm like, I just got to go to the kitchen. I got to go to the bathroom. I got to do something. I got a meeting coming up. I'm like, kids, you got to be quiet and go to your room. And I wish I didn't have to scold them so much. But I'm glad I'm home to be able to even do that. And that's something that wouldn't have happened in my own strength. That's something that the Lord has allowed to be in my life. It's something that was a desire of mine for a long time. And apply to dads too. Are we too busy? Do we work too late to provide a great life? And again, if you have to work late, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. I'm not, I'm not saying it's bad. You know, you own your own business. You have to work a lot of hours to get that business. I get it. That's cool. You know, hopefully your kids maybe will take over the business one day. But if it's always at the expense of the kids, if the kids never know that you love them, if you never even give them, even if it's only one day a month that you can be home, you give them that one day. And maybe, I'm, maybe it sounds like I'm harping too hard. Maybe there are certain pains from childhood that creep out. But one thing I'm learning is that God really is my father. Uh, even like looking for a house, like God was my real estate agent. We tried to go through a real estate agent, but nothing was on. We got up and ended up hooking us up through a for sale by owner and the guy's a pastor and he's moving to go be a part of another church. It's like so many little details with it. Because God really is interested in us and spending time with us. That's the number one thing on Jesus' list is to spend time with you, to spend time with me. And sometimes that'll be in serving. Serving is good. Being busy about our father's business is what we need to be. That's what Jesus said, right? But being busy about his business starts with sitting at his feet. And from there, continues to aspire in a quiet life. That could mean working with your own hands, running your own business. And the, Paul says that, that you might lack nothing. And man, sometimes we lack in life because we're working for somebody else and they don't pay us enough. So use your gifts and talents to start your own business and make some more money and give someone else a job. Like I said before, there's how many times there's been believers who have had more than I and allowed me to use it at no expense or low cost or offered me a job when I didn't have one. And man, I think that's such a great example as a believer who owns their own business. That's a quiet life. Even though they may be busy in all that town and have to do a lot of work, I think this is, it can be a strong example to the world and to the church because it puts them in the world to serve the world and service or whatever it is, but then it uses the world's finances to then finance the church and finance missions. As they make money from the world, getting their plumbing fixed, that money can get tithed to church or given to missionaries. And again, there's something quiet about working with your own hands, using the skills God has given you and I to work. You know, my hands are soft, and I got a friend in New York who makes fun of them. <laughs> say, Let me touch your hands. Like, these are my, my mouse and keyboard hands. You know, I work with them to some degree on a computer. It's definitely not, you know, real work by any stretch of imagination. It's not digging ditches. Um, and you know what? It's not as satisfying at the end of the day when I actually do something. When you can see the front end of my wife's car is off because I have to replace the airbag sensors. It's satisfying to take that off and go, wow, look at that. that's pretty cool looking under there. I don't want to put it back on. And then put the parts back on and fix it. I didn't have to pay anyone to do it. I just had to buy parts. 
and I like my job. But part of it, you know, to be honest with you, part of it, why I like it is because, and maybe it's a wise thing and maybe it's not, but using this skill that I have in computers is, a, is the fastest way for me personally to make the most money in eight, nine hours a day. You know, I go get a job at McDonald's. It's going to pay, I don't want minimum wages now, but you know, it's like my day was like 5.15. But I could do that for eight hours a day or I could do something that I have the skill and make more money. But at the end of the day, you know what? There might come a day when God tells me not to do that anymore and do something else and I won't make the money that I make now. But that job has allowed me to come out here and do this and I'm thankful for that. You know, Paul was a tent maker. The disciples left their nets and their tax collecting and every other job that they had to follow Jesus and they paid their way as they spread the gospel. You know, Paul's a tent maker. They got odd jobs along the way that they wouldn't be a burden under, to anyone and there wouldn't be this false pretense of, I've come to your town to bring the gospel, so... You know, why don't you bless me, brother? You know, they, they wanted nothing to do with that. And I know we're going long, but I'm going to close here in a minute for my third closing rate. But what can you or I do? Because I believe that these two areas of Scripture, because they're Scripture, they're in the same book. They go hand in hand in some way or the other. But to keep seeking Jesus, to keep being at His feet, and to seek a quieter and quieter and quieter life. What does that mean for you? It could mean something totally different than for me to seek a quieter life every day. Because in reality, the quietest life for you and I might be that world-famous minister or worship leader or missionary who travels around doing multiple speaking engagements on TV and elsewhere. Even though it might seem like a loud life. Maybe it's in your job. God, you know, the Bible says that a man's gift brings him before great men. And maybe you're really good at your job and you travel the world for your job. And it's a quiet life for you because you know this is where God has called you to be. You know that when you spend time with the Lord, the Lord says, keep doing this job. Keep working hard. Keep serving those people you work with. And he ends up bringing you to more and more people to serve in higher and higher places. But I think that those lives and ministries that might appear loud and maybe aren't quiet at their heart tend to fail because either they were never founded on sitting before Jesus daily. Someone just had the bright idea that they could go be a pastor and go do this thing. And that scares me. I think, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm ordained. But, like, you know, if this doesn't work out, there's going to be a coming day. Where I'm going to go, all right, Lord, like, you know, even there comes day all the time. I'm like, is this really what you want me to do? And if there comes a day where that happens, I hope that I can say, all right, Lord, I won't do it anymore if he tells me not to do it. Because it'll derail quickly after that. And there's large ministries that we hear about that fail all the time. But they didn't fail right away. There was a long time of grace and mercy that God was trying to get their attention. And then they fail and they fall. Because I believe at some point they got up from sitting. And maybe they got too busy. Maybe it wasn't even a sin issue as far as we think of sin issues. But they got distracted serving. And they stopped sitting. Because I think the main takeaway is, in all of this really in life, is where our desires pointed. And where do we receive those desires from? Because you and I have desires all the time. Some of them might be from the Lord. Some of them might be our flesh. Some of them might be just what our parents put on us, good or bad. My parents were like, you got to cut that beard off to get a job. I'm like, it was 20, I think it was 2016. I'm like, it's 2016. I'm going to get a job. <laughs> they don't care about this. I don't, if I sat you know, before a client, maybe, especially in my industry, it doesn't matter. But as we seek Him, we spend that time with Him. We learn Him. We learn to love Him. He begins to birth and reveal those desires in us. You know, and it's always for a more quiet, more peaceable life. Even if there's more stuff to do, 
somehow there would be that quietness and that peace in the middle of it. I think of a friend in New York who worked for the state of New York for, I don't know, I guess 13 or 16 years, and he kept going further and further in a job, and he, uh, he ended up going down to New York City to work every day, and he had the super long commute there and back, and he worked with children's services. They oversaw, like, daycare, and some of the stuff he would text me every day, like, kid burned today, kid died today, another kid drowned today, you know, all the, like, unlicensed daycare, or regular daycare, like, where are they even in a place where the water is that hot and how they even, you know, it's like mind blowing, like how these things happen, but they happen. And just the stress of the job, stress of the commute, stress of all these things happening. He's just like, I just can't do this anymore. And so he had to take like a little time off and he sought the Lord and he felt like the Lord was calling him to go back further upstate where he grew up and to seek a job that took less money. And he ended up getting like so many job offers where he took one and then he got a better one. He took another one and then he's just been so blessed in it. And, uh, it's just amazing. Like, even just seeing the peace on his face, he looks like a, a totally different person. He's like, I know this is where the Lord wants me to be. Because real ministry, real service in life is best done when we sit at Jesus' feet because he's the one who does all the work. It's like about like, mowing the lawn with my dad as a kid. I'd have a plastic lawnmower and he'd have a regular one. I wasn't really doing anything. He was the one really mowing, but man, I'm out there with my dad. And that's the way ministry and life, that's the way all life really should be. Because there's not a difference between life and ministry. It's just life with Him. And does your life feel chaotic? Even if you don't have anything going on at the moment. I was talking to everybody today about like times when I was out of work or on vacation. And it's like, even then, I still got to have a plan. you know. <laughs> but is there a still small voice? And are you taking the time to hear it? Or are we too busy about something we think is our Father's business, but it's really just our own desire and need to feel busy? Maybe God wants us to learn to sit. And the more we sit, the less busy we desire to be. The more busy and the more effective we can be to get the work for His kingdom done and not ours. That man, like, I think sometimes we don't want to sit too much because, you know, the more you sit, the more lazy you kind of get. But sometimes God, that's all God wants for you and I is to sit with Him and spend time with Him and realize that, man, like, ministry isn't supposed to be a work, it's not a job. You know, I, I get when churches look for a pastor or someone to fill in. I kind of get that. But in the other sense, I, I don't get it. You know, I think that God is going to raise things up naturally sometimes. And maybe I'm just out of touch. But I think sometimes they're supposed to be a lot easier than we make them out to be. And Lord, this morning is, uh, hopefully I haven't made things out more complicated than they need to be by going long. But and I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the, the instruction to sit at your feet. I thank you that everyone here has sat for this hour. God, I pray that this week we would sit with you, even today, and hear from you, and you would help us to learn from you and take your yoke upon us and to lead a quiet life that is uh, honoring to you and really the best life that you have for us. It would be the most fulfilling for us in a way. That's knowing you more. We love you, God. Come back soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.